todo el mundo. Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. My guest today is Mei Peng, the subject of a new biographical documentary, The Lost Weekend, A Love Story, which is about her romantic and creative time with John Lennon in the 1970s. There are a lot of rumors about her unusual story because she was also an employee of John's and Yoko Ono's when she was asked to do something very unusual, which was to have an affair with John. But their relationship turned into more than that, which is covered in the documentary. And we'll be talking about that and a lot more. So let's get her on the phone. Hi, May. Thanks so much for your time today. I know this has been an especially busy year for you. Uh, what with the last weekend coming out in theaters in the spring, and now it's on disc and streaming. Yes, I'm excited for that so that everybody can see it. Absolutely. Um, so I've been familiar with your story for a long time. I uh, actually read my mom's copy of your book, Loving John, when it came out in uh, 1983. <laughs> so, oh, my God. Yes. Oh. So it's what did been, you think? What did you think? Well, I remember, you know, your story always stuck with me and I loved your book and I actually checked it out from a digital library uh, over the weekend so that I could reacclimate myself um, but things have changed a lot in the 40 years, if you can believe that, since your book came out. Um, you have, society has, and I'd just like to know if your perspective has shifted from when you wrote the book to now with the documentary. Well, I guess in, in certain ways, everything changes, you know, um, but the thing is, there's not much that, that, uh, that's changed my mind. It's, you know, it's, it's there. And, you know, for some people, it's new. I mean, I've had people actually say, I never, I've never heard of you. So there isn't much. The perspective is maybe, maybe I should have been a little bit more uh, forthcoming, you know, more, more out there. But I think uh, where I am, 
when I wrote the book is where I am now. So society and social mores have also changed, though, from the time your love story first came to light uh, out to now. So what is the reception to the documentary been? People who have seen it loved it because it fills in the gap for them what happened during that time. I mean, a lot of the stuff you I understand what you're saying about, you know, with the with how things have changed women wise, you know, yeah, we but those things is a natural progression. Uh I think a lot of people would like to make it more than it was when it came to the book or anything else. It wasn't as intense as people uh you know had seen it or read about it. You uh-huh. know, it's, it's typical of some of the book publishers. You know, when they when I was writing the book and they made it more intense than it was because they wanted to get people's attention. And that's why I, I decided a lot that people didn't read um, the book as much as where it is now, you know, where we are now. And this is a more uh, visual society. That's the big ch- change as opposed to reading back then, you know, and people have some people have never heard of me. So, well, they should. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, how did the uh, documentary come about? Was that something that you uh, put together, or did the filmmakers pursue you? No, I had fought fought off a lot of people wanting to put me in their documentary about John. I would have been quote a footnote. If uh, you so I said no for many, many years, as you can tell, it's 40 years and gone, you know. Um, what I what I did do was um, Eve Branstein, who is the one of the co-producer directors said, you know, we remain friends, but I met her many years ago in the 90s and she wanted to option my book, Loving John. And mm-hmm. I said, no, I'm not doing it. So I kept it off the table, but we remain friends. And in remaining friends, you know, I would see her. She she came on both coasts. She lived on both coasts. So I saw her back in 2017 and I hadn't seen her for a while. And I said to her, what are you up to? And she was telling me she was doing, um, you know, different um, movies, directing plays and documentaries. She just mentioned the word documentary. And I just sort of said, that's what I want to do. And she said, are you sure? I said, yes. And she goes, let me have a think. And then she contacted you know, uh, Richard and Stuart. So it went down the line and the, and the three of them uh, said they would, they said they would take on the project. And I was grateful. And so that's how it came about. But this happened, you know, this is not overnight. It, you know, people may think it's like, uh, you know, it took, you know, a year or two. It started in 2017. And it, and it, um, but in 2018, and then we had the pandemic in between, you know. Right. Well, I love the way that The Lost Weekend was visually crafted. And like you said, it really is a visual medium these days. But um, everything from the animation to way the still photographs were brought to life. And it's just so dazzling. And it's really fun to watch. So I'm wondering, were you part of the creative team and involved with the post-production effects process? Or did you just let the, the filmmakers do their thing? I let them do it because, you know, I did not want to have a hand unless it was something, you know, correcting things, you know, like that's not the correct photo or where to get it or is this the right, are these the right dates? 
I wanted not, it's not that I didn't want the input. They already knew what my story was about. They had all the info. The thing was, I did not want to be a hands-on where I've seen people with their hands on and it's like, what are they trying to tell me? You know, that type of thing. And I didn't, uh, uh -huh. I'd rather, cause from them, they, uh, Richard didn't know my story and to make it succinct, I would not be able to tell the story the way I, you know, if I wanted to tell it, it would be all over the place. I taught it to talk, you know, tell my own story. So it was better coming from through their eyes so that other people could understand it better. If, you know, I could tell you something and it, it could go in 10 different ways <laughs> to get there. You know? Right. Well, I mean, to your point, I watched um, the last weekend with a friend of mine who was born in 1981 and, um, oh. Yeah, I mean, she thought the documentary was beautiful and layered and romantic, and we both loved it, but she loved it for maybe different reasons than I did. Um, right. Have you found that younger audiences are as interested in your story as people who actually remember those days? Yes, they are so uh, wanting to know uh, what happened to me afterwards, you know, um, what was it like? They, you know, they, they were curious. They were curious about my, my growing up with my mother, you know, and what happened to her, how did it come about? You know, so there was a lot of layers to this. And I think it's more receptive now than it would have been back then. Yeah. And it, some of the things that are different now that you talked about experiencing, at least in the book, I remember you said that at the time you and John were together, that interracial couples weren't always accepted. Um, so what were some of the yeah, that's true. things that you experienced in that regard? Well, there was one, there was one incident um, in, um, in Chinatown and there's a, um, we had to finish eating and it was late at night and John and I and Bobby Keys, the, the horn player and his wife. And as we're walking, this group of Chinese boys were sitting on the stoop and they yelled out at me in Chinese and I just, just uh, turned my head and, and waved them off. And John said, what did they say? They said, why are you with those white people? Wow. Yeah. But not knowing who they were or anything, that's that was the reaction. And one of the things, though, that you said about John years ago has always stuck with me, and that is that he was a creative genius in an extremely fragile vessel, which I thought was beautifully worded. I'm wondering, uh, do you think that fragility is what caused him to return to his wife, Yoko Ono, even though he was in love with you? I think there's a part of it. I think she understood it. Remember, she's seven and a half to eight years older than him. And to think it was, you know, she was 17 and a half years older than me. Um, she understood him. They went, you know, they, she, she went to therapy. She understood what, what was his weaknesses. And I think, um, and you know, in all, when you think about it, you always rely on your friends and you're hoping that they don't misuse the trust that you trust in, in them, you know, about your life and your, your story. Um, so that, I think that's where the, the fragility comes from. You know, he, um, you know, he, he, remember, you know, when he came to America, the only person he would he knew would have been her. Wow, yeah. When he, first, when he first got here. He didn't have his family, he didn't have his friends, they didn't live here. So you gotta think, uh, you know, that's where it was. Well, I wanna 
cut to past um, John's passing. And I, I remember something that you had said about David Bowie and his assistant, Coco, who were friends of yours, and they were really there for you following his death. I'd yes. love to know, how did you meet David? And I'm wondering, did he, <laughs> uh, you know, how, how did that come about? I just laughed because Elton, John and I, and uh, even Ringo, we were all at, at a party in, in Beverly Hills. And it was for Ricky Martin, who was turning 21. Ricky Martin being Dean Martin's son, not the Ricky Martin of oh, right. today. <laughs> yeah. so, um, so here we are uh, at this party. Elton and, and John and I were standing there. And, and I see this guy walking down the hallway and I looked up and I, I, you know, tugged on, on John's shirt. And I said, I said, it's uh, David Bowie walking down the hall. And cause you know, stars being other stars don't recognize other people. Right. So I see it and I'm always looking. So he goes, okay. So as he heads over, he talks to the person that we were talking to and she goes, oh, oh, David. And then she goes, oh, did you, do you know John and May and Elton? And he said, no. And of course we get introduced. And the woman that we were talking to that we were so enamored by was Elizabeth Taylor. Oh my gosh. Yes. So we were all thrilled, you know, we're like, oh, we're talking to Elizabeth Taylor. So she was the one who introduced us to Bowie. Okay. Yeah. I remember that amazing photo session with, uh, David Bowie and Elizabeth Taylor. Some Terry O'Neill did that. Yeah, I, I saw that. Yes, it was during that time period. Um, well, I'm wondering now, did did David introduce you to your first husband, Tony Visconti, or did you know Tony first? No, he introduced because he was working on, he had come to, when we were in New York, we came over to visit David and David apparently called uh, Tony up and said, hey, listen, John Lennon's coming by. Do you want to come and see him? Because I asked, I asked Tony, and he goes, "Yeah." He goes, "Do you want to meet him?" He goes, "Oh, absolutely!" And so he goes, "I got a million questions, you know." So he <laughs> came down, and that was the first time I had met him. I didn't meet him again till um, what was it, seventy four, eighty four. So that's ten years later. I don't, oh my I don't, goodness! Oh wow. yeah. So this is not something that happened overnight or anything. So yeah. Right. So it had been quite a while in between. Um, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, but you know, when you, you are with a great love of your life for whatever reason, it doesn't work out. And the next person to come along always has that challenge of comparison. So um, what yes. was it about Tony though, that initially attracted you to date I him guess, and fall in love and get married? Oh yeah. And then get divorced as well. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll keep we it go. light. Eh? <laughs> yeah. We'll keep it light. I know I'm laughing. Well, because I saw him yesterday, uh, what was it, on Saturday, because our daughter got married. Oh, um, congratulations. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, you know, it was the music, it was the understanding, it was, it was just, it was very light, you know, and it was like, we enjoyed the same things we talked about, uh, the, the difference around it. He was, he was originally from Brooklyn. He would tell me what it was like, you know, and all the different artists he worked with, you know. So it was you know, it's all that it's, it's uh, music is always going to be the base for, for me, you know, in talking to people. Yes. And I want to just touch on a bit of your, your career in the, the music world. Um, in addition to your work as an assistant with Yoko Ono and John Lennon, at some point 
You also worked on putting songwriters together with artists. So as a fan of early heavy metal, I love that you found a song for Judas Priest. I know. <laughs> yeah, what's the story behind that? I have, you know, United, we had this one guy and he was always a great songwriter, but I couldn't use the songs that he had already in the catalog, which were very lightweight, but they're very Christian. And I said, that's not, I don't know any, and at that time, there wasn't anybody that I can actually bring it to, as it were. So I knew people at Judas Priest, they were looking for, for songs. So Bob comes to me, Bob Halligan comes up and he says, May, I want to work with you. Is there something that I can do? Because he was he was just so talented. I said, I need a heavier song. I can't. And I was honest with him. And I said, if you could do something like a foreigner, because that they had just come out. And I said, just on that, it don't have to be heavy, heavy metal, but more on that that's rock and oriented. So he goes, uh -huh. okay. He came back in about three hours later, four hours, because I got a song that you might be interested. I said, okay, well. I bring it to people I know that were looking for songs for Judas Priest. It was the only song that they want one song. So you can imagine how everybody was just, you know, when you have one song and all these different people are bringing in songs, they happened to like the song that, uh, that I brought, you know, from, from Bob and they liked them so much. They, they said to me later, said we wanted to use a couple of other songs, but we only had space for one. So on the next album, excuse me, on the next album, they wrote, they co-wrote uh, songs with him. And, and what was the song? Do you remember the name of it? Oh, yeah. The song that I got him started. I always call it the changing a, a Christian writer to a heavy metal writer. Uh, yeah. Take these chains. Nice. <laughs> I love that. Well, I know that we're running low on time. So I guess the last question I have for you would be now that the... Uh, documentary is streaming and so many more people will be seeing it now what do you hope the takeaway will be that they realize that um my relationship with john was a lot deeper than than a weekend because uh -huh. a lot of people still think that it's only a weekend um and that uh, that it take care um of a lot of myths that had been you know that they thought that uh John and I split after Elton's concert. That's not the way it happened. Um, that it didn't happen for another couple of months after. Uh, we had Julian. We saw George. I got him back with Paul. That there, There's a whole lot of, you know, all these different stories that were flying around that uh, that were incorrect. And I hope that they see another side. And that it is my voice that's on number nine dream. Yes, that is a, a beautiful story. And you mentioned Julian and my friend and I were watching it together. We both had to get out the, the tissues when, when this moment with you and Julian, which I don't want to spoil, but people need right. to see it. It's beautiful. Listen, I just thought that, you know, for I, I credit all the, the filmmakers on the way they handled the 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 nineteen eighty part, you know, of John's passing. Yes. Um, very because, tastefully done. Yeah. I did not want it to be shown any other way. I was trying to figure, and they found a way, which was I thought was fabulous. Absolutely. Well, everyone should see it. Um, it'll be streaming when this airs. So I'm really excited for more people to see it. And congratulations to you. Thank you, May. Thank you so much, Stacey. This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series, too. 
All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. That's R O C K N R O L L Nightmares.com. Our official theme song is She's Out for Blood by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening.